It was 2.30 in the morning, Tuesday. And Jen has bought some new bedding for our bed. It's really nice, thick, furry, soft comforter over the top of everything, kind of locks in the heat. And so I was just sleeping so good. 2.30 Tuesday morning when the light from the bathroom began to blare in my eyes. And you kind of, you know, you kind of wake up to that, whether you're blinking and can't quite focus your eyes. And I see my wife in the bathroom mopping up the floor with towels. I'm like, what is going on? And our flapper in our toilet is not sealing in the tank. And so the, the, because the toilet was plugged, we didn't know that the bowl filled up and began to kind of just, you know, it was a nice little waterfall cascading in our bathroom. And she was up cleaning the water up and it woke me up and then I couldn't go back to sleep, right? It's one of those things where sometimes you just wake up a little bit, you can go back to sleep. But when you get really woke up and you're aware, you're kind of cogent, then it's hard to get back in that deep sleep cycle. <clears throat> and so I, I was up till about 6 a.m. And um, in the process of being actually very productive um, in those hours with sermon writing and some other things I, I was getting done, I ended up in a conversation on Facebook at 4.30 a.m. on Tuesday morning uh, with a friend back east who's a, a Christian college professor. And on his page, he posted the question. And, uh, and so I'll just read you what he said, this exchange, really quickly. He said, um, I've asked this question before, and I'm looking for a good answer still. We have a veritable apologetics industrial complex. Now, if you don't know what apologetics is, it's the uh, apologia is the Greek word for uh, answer, right? So when Peter says in 1 Peter 3, be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have within you, that's this idea of an apologetic. It's a reason, a reasoned response for why we put our hope in Jesus. And so he says, we have this veritable apologetics industrial complex. Um, we have nerds like William Lane Craig, who's a philosopher who I really love, by the way. And he said, no insult intended. Uh, he said, they're superstars. We have more seminaries churning out uh, evangelical doctors of ministry and PhDs than ever before. And yet the mindlessness of the American conservative Christian subculture as a whole has never been more pronounced than it is now. What are we doing wrong? And all these people responding to, to Don Williams, my friend. And so I, I chimed in and this is what I said, Don there's very little discipleship happening in the church. There's very little discipleship happening in the home. Parents are not equipped by the church to disciple their own children. And when they get to middle school and high school, it's a steady dose of lame entertainment in the church with some Jesus thrown in for good measure. And then they're passed over in their 20s, picked up again when they have kids, and they're a, quote, giving unit. And by then, the church has missed the opportunity to impart a biblical worldview among other things. We went on to have more conversation, but I came back to that later as I was uh, thinking about this sermon and this idea of discipleship in the home. Uh, discipleship is, here's the definition, intentional growing towards Christ-likeness. It's intentional. You're making a decision. I want to be more like Jesus. I'm going to find ways to move forward on the path to being more like Jesus. Uh, so, so what are some of the tools that help us on the journey of discipleship? Well, I'm glad that you asked this morning. Uh, Ephesians 4 we read this weeks ago as we've been working through the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 4, verses 11, 12, and 13. Listen to what Paul says, some of the tools that he's given you to help you on your journey of discipleship. God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints, that's you, for the work of ministry 
for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So uh, check that again, roles and offices in the church as, a, as an organization function so as to equip you, the saints, you're like, saints are old dead people that Roman Catholics pray to. It's like, no, that's not, that's not what a saint is. Saint means holy one. And if you're in Christ Jesus, you're holy because of Christ Jesus. You're a saint, right? So we, we endeavor to equip you for the work of ministry. And as we engage our faith and join God in the work of ministry that he's already doing in the world, here's the cool part. We're changed, when we find, we look around and say, where is God at work? I want to be a part of what he's doing. The byproduct, the natural byproduct is we are changed as a result of that. And we become more like the God that we worship. We love him more. And then what happens is we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We begin to love people. And maybe you're a person that doesn't love people, but the more that you love God, the more you'll find that he's changing your heart going, man, I actually really care about these people around me and they're not just annoying me all the time. I actually love them. And then, and then you begin to, as you begin to love people more, then you, then you begin to embrace what it means to live generously because suddenly your stuff doesn't matter as much as people do. And you're willing to part with your stuff if it means reaching people for the gospel right? And so we love God. We love people. We live generously. And this is a call to follow Jesus and become like him. And then as we do that, we're impacting the people around us. And you go, well, who, like, who is following me? I'm not a disciple maker. I don't have any disciples. I don't have any followers. Well, can I just say to you this morning, if you are a parent or a grandparent, if you have children or grandchildren or step-grandchildren or adopted children, or if the neighborhood kids just hang out on your front lawn, you have disciples, you have followers because they watch you. They watch you. They follow and mimic and copy what they see in you. Does that, does that scare you a little bit? It should. It should. Kids are watching you, right? And the default position of the American church and all of that is to drop our kids off at church for one to two hours a week and we expect that the church will magically undo all that the world is doing to shape and form our children. And I, here's what you need to know. I will not stand before God and answer for the discipleship of your child or your grandchild. I will stand before God and answer for the discipleship of my children and you will answer for the discipleship of your children. So let's make sure that we understand that concept fully. All that is to say, what I want for us as a church is to set the expectation that Emmaus Road, uh, no parent ever here ever assumes that the responsibility of discipleship of their children falls primarily on the church. The church is to come around the family, aid the family, equip the family, but the primary burden of discipling the children falls on the parents and on the grandparents in that home, in that family unit. Okay, so you are the primary disciple of your children. Um, so from birth to graduation, we want to be a church that comes alongside parents. We want to equip parents. We want to help the family do what it's designed to do. So look around this morning and go, okay, we're a, we're a small growing church. We're small by our culture standards. Now, if you were here when the Waynoses came, our Japanese missionaries, they were blown away. They're like, oh, there are 50 or 60 people in the room. This is a huge church, right? Because the average size church in Japan is like seven or eight people. You're like, this is a big church. And, and so there are, there are probably 50 or so people on an average Sunday, 50 to 60 to Mass Road, but that doesn't really feel like a groundswell, does it? Like a big movement. And that doesn't, it doesn't have that... that 
synergy yet, but my heart is comforted by God's word. You know, when God was going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, there's this scene where Abraham intercedes for the people and there's this parlay, right? This back and forth. And, and Abraham says, there, Lord, if there are 10 righteous in the city, will you spare the city, right? You guys read this Sunday school story, flannel graph, are you seeing it in your mind? And there's the little flannel Abraham, there's Jesus, right? If there are 10 in the city, Will you spare the city? Well, okay, okay, Lord, far be it from me to, to intervene in what you're doing, God, but, but if there are nine, if there are nine righteous people in the city, right, and he just kind of works it down and down and down and down and down. And in all of that, in all of that, God said, I will spare the city. It doesn't take 10 or 100 souls. If there are just a couple of righteous people, God can work. And so I was thinking about this this week. There are 50 to 60, on average, souls in this room every Sunday that God could use us to change, completely change the course of a community, an entire community, with 50 to 60 men and women whose hearts are completely given over to God and his purposes. Man, that's exciting to me. That's exciting to me. With that many families pursuing Christ and raising their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, what could God do in a community where people are yielded to his way and the way that we do family? I mean, I believe that he could change the course of a, of a region and even a nation with, with just 50 or 60 families, people, people just loving their kids, raising their kids well. And the question, I was wrestling with this, so I'm tracking this through, this, this is Tuesday morning at 4.30, and I'm tracking this through going, well, how would that work? How would God do that, right? And God took me to Psalm 127. In fact, listen to the words of the psalmist. Uh, this is Solomon writing. He says in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, that's the home, not just the building, but the home, the family, that those who try to build it are laboring in vain. If God's not the one who's involved at the very foundation of this unit, this family unit, it's in vain. He says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain that you get up early and go to bed late, uh, eating the bread of anxious toil, for God gives his beloved sleep. And then he says this, he says, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Man, that's crazy. Our culture doesn't think like that. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. And blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the city gate. Now, if you're looking along in the, in the text, or if, you've, if you're following along in the app and you're looking at Psalm 127, note that there is a progression of social institutions here in the psalm. God references the home first because it's the foundation that's the foundational institution that God has ordained and it's built on marriage, right? And so we've been talking about marriage for four weeks because that is the, the, the base layer of everything else that God builds on in a society is marriage and then the family and then society, culture, right? And so notice God's perspective on how children are, it's different from our culture's perspective because he says children are a reward, that is not how we think about children as a, as a culture. We look at children as a hindrance to our plans and dreams. And I want to just stop here and restate the obvious. When we gather together on Sunday mornings or when, when you guys come into life groups and people's homes in the middle of the week, what we're doing is we're coming 
under the teaching of God's word and we're inviting him to realign us with his word, with his truth. We're going, God, I I think I have a good grasp on what is right and true, but I I recognize there's some things that I don't, I'm not in alignment with you. Bring me into alignment with what your word says. Bring my thinking into alignment with what your truth is. And so God's not stuttering here in Psalm 127. He's really clear about his perspective on children and family. And if it feels like it's different from our perspective, personally or culturally, well, then we have to submit ourselves to his perspective. And so while not all of us in the room have kids or maybe are able to have kids, that doesn't excuse us from aligning our perspective on these issues with God's truth. So because God uses the family unit defined by his word and functioning accordingly to change nations, we've got to get this right. We've got to get this right if if we're gonna impact the culture as the church. So let's look at Ephesians 6. Our text this morning is Ephesians 6, verses one through four. Children, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then God sprinkled magic fairy dust on the congregation, and every child heard the words, and they obeyed perfectly from that point forward. And all was well, right? Right. Verse (laughs) 2. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So let's go back and look at the verses just a little at a time. Look at verse one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's an authority issue. It's an authority issue. And children need to be taught from the time that they can understand that they need to obey their parents. They need to be taught to obey their parents. Children who do not learn this lesson, who do not obey their parents, who are not made to obey and are not punished for disobedience, end up despising authority as adults. Did you know that? Because who's the first authority that God puts in the life of a person? A person comes into the world, they come in a tiny package, praise God, so they can't destroy cities. It's like, oh, I want food, I'm gonna destroy it. It's like, oh no, you're a little thing, right? And then they, they, they grow up, but they, they grow up despising authority. What happens? Well, if, if they don't respect and submit to the first authority God's put in their life, their parents, they're gonna have a problem with authority for the rest of their lives, Right? And so if a child doesn't grapple with and come to terms with authority when they're small, it's very unlikely that they'll do it later when they gain knowledge, stature, and strength because that willful spirit has not been broken in them, right? And so uh, a physician that we know back in Georgia, we got this uh, secondhand, but she talks about funnel parenting. I thought this was so wise. We, we were just starting our family and our boys were really small. And so when a child is really young, they need to learn to obey, right? No questions asked. They obey because you're the parent. End of discussion. The two-year-old doesn't have any leverage, right? The, 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 down here, I just obey because I'm the parent. And so uh, the, the, the funnel's tight. It's tight when they're small. Funnel's tight. The boundaries are tight. 
And then as they get to be about, I don't know, five to 10 years of age, they, they, need, they need more than just a command to obey. They need to know that they're loved. They need to know that they obey because uh, mom and dad set boundaries for them for their good. And there needs to be some more explanation. And there needs to be more than just do it because I told you. There needs to be more, right? And so the, the boundaries begin to expand a little bit. And as those kids get a little bigger and they can do more chores around the house and they, they, they model that they are being responsible and they're taking on responsibility and growing, then some of the boundaries loosen up, right? Yeah, you can go over to your friend's house this afternoon and play. Yeah, you can. Yeah, that's cool, right? And then, and then as they get to be in their teens, there needs to be discussion about the consequences of their decision making uh, because they're, they're ready to begin thinking critically and conceptualizing at that stage, right? But please understand, like a two-year-old doesn't think critically, right? Doesn't conceptualize stuff, it, that, that happens later in development. This is all just, like, pick up the average psychology textbook, okay? Teenagers need to think critically and begin to conceptualize the consequences. And then late teens into adulthood, it's more of a, parents, your job is to say, here's what I think uh, about your decision making, but you're gonna have to be the one who lives with the consequences, right? It's, it's more hands off. And in my mind, and, and I've got an 18-year-old, a 16-year-old, and a 12-year-old. And it, for me, it's like driving a stick shift and trying to uh, find that sweet spot as you let out on the clutch and in on the gas. And some of you have never drawn, driven a manual and have no idea what I'm talking about. But, the, but you can stall out a car really fast if you go too quickly and letting out on the, on the clutch and in on the gas. And you got to find that release, right? That funnel starts small and tight with lots of control and very tight boundaries and strict guidelines for small children. And as the child grows and obeys and learns, then the, those, those things are gradually loosened to accommodate the person that the child is becoming, giving increased freedom where responsibility is demonstrated. Does that make sense? Does this visual help? helpful for some of you? Uh, I see a few nods. The rest of you need more coffee. Okay. So, so this is, this is the funnel. And then here's what our, here's what our culture does. We flip the funnel upside down. We flip the funnel upside down and it starts really wide with no boundaries at all. And, and we call it free range parenting and it's incredibly destructive to our children. And, and, and isn't it cute when little Johnny talks back to mom and dad? And isn't it cute when little Jenny spits on people? And isn't it cute when, no, it's not cute. Johnny needs a spanking. It's probably the parents do too, right? So it's not cute, it's not funny. You're setting your kids up for failure later in life. Or you get the parents in the grocery store, right, who tell the child, put it down, like 13 times, right? And nothing happens. Why does nothing happen? Because that child knows that there is zero expectation that anything's gonna happen. There's no repercussion. I just have to ride this out. I'm the one in control, not the parent. They're smart little things. They pick this up quickly, right? That's a kid who knows that he or she is the one that's in charge. So children must learn to obey their parents. And look at verse two. Uh, Paul says, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now that harkens back to Exodus 20 and the 10 commandments. And, and so this is the first of the commandments of God that comes with a promise. And God is saying there in Exodus 20, here's what you can expect when a child embraces the boundaries that I have set in the home. Here's you, that it's going to go well for them. Things are going to go well, right? Now, living in the land speaks very specifically to the Israelites living in the promised land. But it's true 
in every generation, in every place, that prosperity tends to follow and distinguish those children who have embraced this reality and have sought to obey and honor their parents. And things tend to go better. It's just a general truth. And I'll brag. Can I just stop and brag for a minute? A few weeks back, we were having this conversation on a Sunday night at our house. And in the, in the midst of the conversation, the question was, do we we're going to each person in the family, do you feel loved? Do you, do you feel like, you know, what do you need from the other people in the family right now in this season of our life as a family? And it came around to dad. And the question that you know, all the kids are asking, daddy, do you feel loved? And I said, no, who cares about feeling loved? Right? If you've been here for the marriage series, you know I'm at like the distinction between love and respect. I'm like, I don't, I don't need to feel loved, uh, but I do feel respected. I feel incredibly respected, right? Uh, my kids love and respect me. And what's more, other people praise them to me for, for how they are in the community. And that's like double respect. And I'm just like, oh man, I am so blessed as a daddy to hear about my kids having a reputation in the community that is respected. And that, that comes back on me. And I love that. And they're not perfect, man. Please don't, uh, PKs, man, pastor kids, they carry such a weight anyway. And I don't want to put more on them. And anybody here would expect that they're going to be perfect all the time because they're not. But they're great kids. And, and, I, and I just, man, my heart is full when I think about this. And the grace that God gave to me and Jen early to her just crying out in prayer most days when the boys were super little going, Lord, please teach me how to parent these kids. I don't know how. And and just crying out to him for wisdom, right? I love that. I love that. And then verse four says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Do not provoke your children to anger. So listen to me, dads, moms too, but especially dads, Just know that you possess great power to encourage your children towards good and towards blessing. But that with that power comes the shadow side, right? Every good strength has a shadow side. And your shadow side of this strength, you possess the ability to discourage and dishearten your children as well. You can dishearten your kids. In fact, you can, by your action or your inaction, provoke your children to anger. Now, what they do with that anger is on them before the Lord, but you can provoke your children to anger. So let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Be thoughtful about your responses to your kids. Operate out of a truthful environment where honesty in your home is held up as a very high value. Right? I want this to be a place of honesty and transparency. I want to be able to deal with my kids. I want them to be able to be honest with me about what's going on in their life. So dads, this means practically that there's a meeting of mercy and authority, right? Mercy and authority, law and grace coming together in a, in a balance in your home. We, we have to be, well, I've said this before, dads especially are in the place of, um, this is what Paul says, all, all family derives its, its concept from God, especially dads, because in the play that we're playing, dads are in the role of God the Father. And so in that play that we're playing, dads, we have to be strict and severe where God is strict and severe. And we have to be merciful and tender where God is merciful and tender, 
right? We have, to, we have to mirror him to our children. You see why this is so hard? Like you can't just get away with a 10-minute devotional every day. You need to be in the word. You gotta be in the word, right? And so, so we have to be stingy and withhold from our, from our children where God is stingy and withholds. You say, God isn't stingy. Yes, he is. There's, there's a ton of, there's a big boatload of sin that he keeps from you. He doesn't want you to have it. Right? Yeah, so we're going to be stingy where God is stingy, withhold where he withholds, and be generous where God is generous. You get you picking up this up? Like, whatever God's doing, we got to see what he's doing and try to mimic that. And I don't remember where I first heard this, but this is lodged deep in my heart. So make sure you get this next part, dads. Listen, future dads, if we are strict where God is merciful, and we're merciful where God is strict, And if we're stingy, where God is generous, and so on, then we're busy supplying the next generation of strip clubs with both its patrons and its pole dancers. We're setting our kids up for failure when we're not representing God rightly in the home. God has a backbone. God didn't say to Adam, put that down. I'm going to count to 10. Right? A lot of parents think that they're teaching godliness when what they're really teaching is fractions. Nine, nine and a half, nine and three quarters. Proverbs 22 says, train up a child in the way that he should go and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. I love that phrase, the way that he should go. It's a Hebrew term that means find your child's bent. (laughs) And they're all bent. (laughs) <laughs> they are. Have some. You don't believe me. They are bent. And you're bent. And, and God's just had longer to try to straighten you out. Right? But they're, they're bent little people. And, and figure out what their bent is. I love this. Uh, my three kids, there are no people on the planet more closely genetically related to one another than my three children. You know, it's just true in a family. And yet they are so different. They are so different. You know, with punishing, with figuring out like what kind of punishment gets the best impact with the kids was so strange to us because, you know, Noah would need a spanking every once in a while. And, but you only had to look at Ethan sideways and he'd be like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, he just, it was a different personality. They didn't need the same things. And you got to discover who your children are. Discover who this little person is that God's entrusted into your care and your stewardship. Your second child will be so different than your first child and on and on and on. And that's not to say that you don't maintain the same principles and rules and boundaries with all of your children. But this is to say that they will all respond differently to your authority and your discipline. And so you've got to find out how your kids are bent. What is the way in which they should go? Your job as a parent, especially dads as the head of the home, is to discover who God has given into your care and then understand what is it that they need from me? What is it that they need from me? Not just discipline, not just the boundaries, but the love and the affection and the, and the encouragement. What do they need from me, right? And in all of these realities, God the Father, the one that the Ephesians says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, he models these concepts and truths for us. So, so we ask the question, well, well, then what does God do with his kids? Well, whatever he does with his kids, it's what we should do with our kids, Right? Well, I'm going to give you three things. We'll just wrap up with this. Three things. God disciplines his kids. He delights in his kids. And he disciples his kids. 
He disciplines, delights, and disciples his kids. Let's look at discipline your children. Now, God disciplines his own children. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12 says this. Listen to this. Hebrews 12, 7 to 11. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God's treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? And if you're left without discipline, in which everybody has participated, then you are not legitimate children. You are not sons. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews is saying. If you've never received the discipline of the Lord, you're not his kid. I don't get to spank other people's kids. It's not that I don't want to. It's that they're not my kids, right? If you have not received the discipline of the Lord, you're not his kid. Besides this, he says, verse nine, We've all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Now for the moment, all discipline seems to be painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So God disciplines his children. And then let me just give you a couple of Proverbs here under discipline to just really drive, drive home the point that God wants you to discipline your children. Okay. Proverbs twenty two fifteen, Folly, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Now I'm just, these are so insensitive. These are so culturally inappropriate. I cannot believe that we're reading these in church, right? Um, foolishness here, folly, is not the same as silliness or lightheartedness. This is not a directive to parents to create somber, goose-stepping children who walk in formation everywhere they go, right? This is, that's not what it's saying. This one sounds really harsh to our enlightened 21st century American ears, but the reality is that children are born with a sin nature. Now, it's the craziest thing. I didn't have to teach my kids to lie. There were no lessons at home on here's how you tell a lie. It just happened. It just happened. I did have to work hard to teach my children to do what is right and to obey, contrary to the nature that they were born with. Part of the training for parents involves uh, the children learning early that sin has consequences and that often those are painful consequences. If a child grows up with little to no pain as a result of sinful choices, hell's going to make no sense at all. You're setting them up for failure. Hell will make no sense at all. God is unjust. You're kidding me? He's going to punish me? It's going to be painful because I sinned? Well, I've never had to, I've never experienced pain for sin. Mom and dad always just look the other way. Yeah, it makes no sense. It makes no sense, right? Proverbs 23, 13. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. Okay, same as the proverb above. But I love the tagline on this one. He will not die. Now, if you beat a child the wrong way in anger, mercilessly, you can injure a child, you can kill a child, but that is not what is in view in this proverb. Children will wail and cry like they're dying before they're ever punished. You've all been there, right? They will just scream their full heads off. So as a rule, here's how we did it at our house. When I had to spank a child, they got sent to their room to wait. And I needed the next two to three to four minutes to pray and to calm down. 
because I, I, I can never, I never want, never wanted to spank my kids in anger as a dad because God doesn't do that. He doesn't fly off the handle with us. And I'm supposed to represent him and what he's like. And so it's like, okay, go to your room and wait for me. I'll be there in a few minutes. And I need to take some time to cool off. I need to pray and ask God for wisdom. How do I handle this, Lord? What do I do with this kid? Right now, I want to strangle this kid, right? What do I do with this kid? Help me to honor you. And then I would go to their room and we would talk because I want to know that the child knows what they've done what they're being punished for, so that they associate the thing that they did with the punishment. There's got to be a connection, right? And then I say, okay, I have to spank you now. And then there would be a spanking, and then there would be lots of hugging, lots of hugging, lots of, I forgive you, it's over, and this won't come up again. Not going to talk about it anymore. Not going to drag it up again. Not going to make it an issue. It's been dealt with. It's over, and I love you. Man. That's what God does. That's what God does. Make it a hard and fast rule. Never grab your child up and spank them in a moment of anger or frustration. Don't do that. You're misrepresenting God. As parents, we're called to reflect God to our children, especially as dads, future dads. You can't do that if you're snatching them up and, and, and spanking in anger because you're embarrassed or you're frustrated or you're angry. You will set them on a bad path. Don't do that. Take, take a moment. Take a moment, get with the Lord. And then, and then on this discipline piece, let me give you one more proverb here. Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. Whoever loves him is diligent to discipline him. And so this is just gets really, really clear, very plain text. And I'm sorry if it wounds some of you deeply. Just remember that Proverbs also says that the wounds of a friend can be trusted, but that an enemy will multiply kisses. So if you only ever hear from me things you want to hear and not hard things that you need to hear, I'm your enemy, not your friend, okay? But here's what, the, here's what the proverb says. I love you enough to tell you the truth. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. Whoever loves him is diligent to discipline. If you don't discipline your child, you don't love your child. Can I say it any more plainly than that? Scripture says if you don't discipline your kids, you don't love your kids. The person you love is you and your own comfort If you love your child, you'll be diligent to discipline your child. So God disciplines his children and we must discipline our children. And then here's the second one. We have to delight in our children. God the Father delights in his children. Listen to the words of Psalm 147, verses 10 and 11. God does not delight in the strength of the horse. God takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord delights in, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, whose hope is in his steadfast love. Now, if you have put your hope in the steadfast love of God, you're a follower of Jesus. He delights in you. He delights in you. He loves his kids. He he takes pleasure in his children. And so if God loves his kids, takes pleasure in his kids, guess what? We, We need to do that too. We need to delight in our children. That means play with them. Get down in the floor with them, right? Get down in the floor and play with your kids and do it often. You know, I was thinking about this this week. The hardest part of moving from, uh, from Athens, Georgia to Stanwood, Washington in, in 2010 was the moment when the house was cleared of all the furniture and all our boxes were out and they were gone. And we were, we were it was the last time we were ever going to be standing there in the house, in the kitchen. And 
And I was standing there in the, in, the, in the breakfast nook looking out the bay window at the swing set that my dad built for his grandkids. And the slide where, where all of our kids learn to swing and, and go down the slide and, and, then, and then go back up the slide instead of going up the ladder because every kid does that too. And where they learn to climb, Noah learned to climb on top of the swing set. And it was just so many memories there of that, that standing in the kitchen, seeing the kids when they were little, playing there and delighting in my kids in those moments and looking out the window and, and, and just this, that flood of memories came over me and it was so hard to leave that moment and leave that place. And I stood there in this house emptied of all our belongings and I, and I wept because of all the memories that we made there, memories that were filled with me delighting in my children in that season of their lives. And so, man, delight in your kids, play with them, get down in the floor with them. When they get bigger, uh, they, they won't want to play with you and they want to go do their own thing. Take advantage while you have them small. Play with them. Uh, when they get bigger, you know, when the boys were born, it's like they just came out ready to wrestle, you know, broad-shouldered little, little dudes, and they're like, let's wrestle. And then now, like, I get hurt, right? I get hurt. So we, do, we can't do that as much anymore because they're going to they're gonna hurt dad. And, and so, like, if you've got little girls, get down to the floor, play dollhouse with your girls. When Abby was little, she had this dollhouse, and we would, we would play for a long time. Every day, she's like, Daddy, play dollhouse with me. And you get down on the floor and play dollhouse. And, and um, man, just, just remembering those things. Wrestle with your, your kids. Play dollhouse with your daughter. Have tea parties with your daughter. Kneel beside their beds at night and, and read them stories. Or, or better yet, make up stories. Make up stories. I've got a whole uh, series of children's stories that I told the kids that we just made up on the spot that I'm like, man, someday I got to write that down and sell that and like make some money with some children's books, you know? But it's like this whole series. Man, just, can I tell you a story? Can I tell you a story? Just, I'm just thinking about delighting in my kids. One of the, the mantra at our house from the time that the boys were born was boys protect girls, always. Boys protect girls, Boys protect girls. And when they got to be teenage, preteens and teenagers, it became boys protect girls, even if that means you have to protect them from yourself. So that's, that's, a, that's the rule, always, at our house, right? And so there's this moment where um, Abby was like, I don't know, almost two. Man, she was just like knee high. And, and she didn't have her, she was bald as a little baby. And she didn't have a lot of hair at that stage. There's this cute little girl toddling around. And we, in Georgia, we have big vultures, right? Big, big vultures, the size of bald eagles. And then I was telling the boys now, you better watch out for your sister. Don't let one of those vultures swoop down and take your sister, right? And, uh, and I was kind of grinning, telling them, don't, don't you let the vulture get Abby. And they had been to this fair and they got these bows and arrows, there's this bamboo bow and, and a little wooden dowel with an eraser on the end for the arrow tip. And they had these bows and arrows, right? And so just a few minutes later, I happened to glance out the window in the front yard. And there goes Abby toddling through the yard, right? And there go her brothers with their bows and arrows, just covering their sister, watching for vultures. It was the best thing. My, my daddy heart just swelled up with pride in my boys and I took so much delight in my kids because they were my boys protecting their sister from the vultures and it was just a sweet, sweet moment that I delighted in my children. And so if we're gonna be like God, we've gotta discipline our kids and then we also gotta delight in our kids. And then here's the last thing this morning. We discipline our children, we delight in our children, and then we have to disciple our children. 
We have to disciple our kids. God disciples his kids and a disciple is someone who learns from God in order to live for God. And somebody who, who learns from Jesus, who's the exact representation of God in order to live like Jesus, right? Uh, and so God would say to his people back in Deuteronomy chapter six, this is what he said about discipling your kids. He said, listen, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today, let them be on your heart. And then then he says this, teach them diligently to your children and talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. So talk about the word of God and Jesus and what he's like with your kids when you're you're going to soccer practice. Talk about Jesus when you're sitting down at the dinner table. Talk about Jesus when you kneel beside their bed at night. Talk about Jesus. He says, you shall bind these commandments as a sign on your hand. Let them be as frontlets between your eyes. Ride them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Man, put, put scripture on your walls. You know the best thing I ever did for memorizing scripture for a while with a group of guys was just in the shower. I had a dry erase marker and I wrote scripture all over the shower and every day in the shower I'm like I'm, I'm memorizing Philippians I'm memorizing this passage man just get it in front of you this is God's call to disciple our kids and, and when you read through the Old Testament you get to the time of the judges and you see the total dysfunction and depravity of a society that was supposed to be a godly culture had just crumbled to, to nothing and had become just like the cultures around them it was not a failure of the priests it was not a failure on the part of the government it was a failure on the part of parents to do what God has said in Deuteronomy 6 the dads were not teaching their kids the moms were not teaching their kids the word of God so, so find a regular time in your week. Find a meal. If you, you, you got to eat food, eat it together, and then use that time, right? Our meal every week, four or five times a week when the kids were small was breakfast. Dinners didn't work because I was doing campus ministry and college students are night owls and I was out of the house most evenings. But we have breakfast together, right? And so mom and dad, read God's word together. You don't have to be a pastor or theologian. You don't have to have all the answers. Just, just be willing to say to your kids, sweetie, I don't know the answer to that question, but I'll, I'll read this afternoon. I'll find out. I'll find out. And then go do the research or, or call me. I'm happy to help, right? But if your kids have questions, point them to God's word and search out his truth together. It's part of their growth and development. Family discipleship is a way of life. It's not a program. Model what it looks like to walk with Jesus. Pray with your kids. Pray for your kids. And then let them see and hear you pray. And then when they get to be old enough, invite them in to pray. Ask them to pray and to participate in the prayer. Connect them to the family of God. Connect them to the church. If you don't discipline your children, if you don't disciple your children, the world will disciple your children. And every day they're bombarded with messages from the culture about how they should think and look and act and be. And that gets, that gets more as they get older. It doesn't, it doesn't decrease and it doesn't magically go away. And you're not called to be an ostrich parent. You don't get to stick your head in the sand and pretend like it's just going to all be okay in the end. You have to engage because one day you'll stand before Jesus as a parent or a grandparent of your children or grandchildren and you will answer for their discipleship. So don't let the culture raise your kids for you, right? Train your children, train your grandchildren in God's ways. And there's a particular growth in the spirit that only comes by doing. 
Don't wait till you feel like I've got a good grasp on the whole Old Testament before I can sit down with my grandkids and read the Bible with them. Don't wait, right? There's a, there's a growth that comes in the doing. There's a growth that comes in stepping out in faith and says, I'm going to try this. Walking in faith into uncharted waters for many of us when it comes to this thing, right? And then, and then what that does is it forces us into a place where we have to rely on Jesus for his wisdom and help. We have to rely on Jesus to fill us with the Holy Spirit. And as uncomfortable as that feels, The Spirit of God wants you all to know this morning, especially moms and dads with young kids, it's right where he wants you to be. Right in the place of discomfort, right in the place of crying out to him for wisdom and grace to train your kids. Discipline your children. Delight in your children. Disciple your children. Father, would you give us grace today to do that? Your word's so abundantly clear and it's so counter to our culture and counter to what the world has said to us. It sounds so harsh to our ears. It's hard to hear. I pray that you give us grace today to hear your truth, to embrace your truth, and to be a people who raises our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, who raises our children, goes after their bent to discover who they are and to raise them in a way that honors you, training them in righteousness. Lord, give us grace as a community of faith, as a family of faith, We ask in Jesus' name, amen.